That means there's no such thing as dead Christianity. If you're dead, you're probably not a Christian. Because when God comes into the lives of people, He lights them. He lights them. That's why we're called a city set on a hill, the light of the world, salt of the earth. God wants us to burn. So we've been talking about different things that keep that fire burning in us. And I think one of the things that quenches the fire is when you go through a trial that you don't understand, that you don't respond to well, that kind of knocks you for a loop and knocks the air out of your faith. And if you're not careful, you'll say, well, this wasn't true for me. And you walk away, pick up your marbles, go home, and you miss out on what God has for you because you didn't understand what had taken place in your life. Well, I'm going to talk to you about providence today. I'm going to read some passages, then I'm going to set them up and kind of tell you what this means. Uh, But let's read this, then I'm going to explain the verses. When the boy had almost reached the arrow, Jonathan shouted, The arrow is still ahead of you. Hurry, hurry, don't wait. So the boy quickly gathered up the arrows and ran back to his master, Jonathan. He, of course, suspected nothing that is the boy. Only Jonathan and David understood the signal. Then Jonathan gave his bow and arrows to the boy and told him to take them back to town. As soon as the boy was gone, David came out from where he had been hiding near the stone pile, and David bowed three times to Jonathan with his face to the ground. Both of them were in tears as they embraced each other and said goodbye, especially David. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today and that you've got something for us. And I pray that the wisdom of God will be deposited in our hearts today. That we would understand the power and the certainty of your providence in our lives. And I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Will you breathe a prayer, church, and say, Lord, speak to my heart. Change my life today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, before you're seated, I want you to turn to the person next to you on either right or left and tell them, God has everything under control. Wasn't that a beautiful baptism, water baptism? That was neat. All those people getting baptized. Now, let me, let me set this up for you. You remember that when uh, Saul was anointed king, he, he blew it twice. The first time he was told by Samuel, your kingdom is not going to continue forever. And the second time he was removed from the throne, it just took time for God to work that out. In the meantime, Samuel went to the house of Jesse, anointed David to be the next king of Israel. Well, for a while there, David was in good standing with Saul's house. Matter of fact, he played his instrument and Saul was delivered from oppression. Demon spirits got away from Saul and quit tormenting him when David played the harp. But eventually, Saul began to look at him through eyes of mistrust. And here's what he said to himself, if I'm not careful, that guy's going to get my job. Well, he didn't know that it was already decreed by God that that guy had gotten his job. So he begins to look at David through eyes of envy and jealousy from that day forward. Now fast forward, he began to try to kill David. 
he actually began to try to assassinate him, even with people standing around, sitting there watching. He was losing his mind. Saul is a tragic Bible figure. We would call him a tragic hero, a hero who ended tragically. Now, uh, it came to the place where David decided, I'm probably going to have to leave town, get out of Israel and go into hiding, or this man's going to kill me. And Jonathan and he cut a deal. Jonathan, who was his dear friend, Saul's son, uh, they became best friends, close, loved one another like brothers. And Jonathan said to him, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to go, I love the way the Bible puts this, I'm going to go sound out my father. I'm going to, I'm going to see what he's really thinking, David, about you. And if he intends to kill you, let's cut a little deal. I'm going to go to a field. I want you to go to this particular field and hide. And in three days, I'm going to come to that field. And I'm going to shoot three arrows. And I'm going to say one of two things when I send my little arrow retriever to get the arrows I'm going to say one of two things. I'm going to either say, the arrows are on this side, retrieve them. And if I say that, David, you know you're safe and you can return to the kingdom. He's not going to try to kill you. Or I'm going to say, go farther. The arrows are still ahead of you. And David, if I say that, he's out for your life and you must flee. Well, as we just read, while David was waiting in the field, Jonathan came and shot those three arrows, and as the boy was going to retrieve them, he said, go farther. The arrows are ahead of you. And David knew at that very moment that he was being led to leave, that he must flee. Friends, family, home, security, comfort, fame, popularity, familiarity, he had to flee it all. Now, we have to understand something about the way David thought and the people in his day thought, and, and every believer in here today and listening by radio ought to also think. David fully believed in the providence of God. He believed in providence. And, you know, if we were to go back a couple of hundred years and go to, into almost any church in America and listen to the preaching, we would hear the regular theme of providence preached from the pulpits. It's been lost. And it's a shame it's been lost because it, it really causes God's people to go through a lot of unnecessary worry and fear. Because when you understand providence and trust providence, then you have a way of just kind of resting in God and knowing that He's got everything under control. Now, let me explain providence. A distinction is usually made between two kinds of providence. The first one is general providence, and the second one is special providence. Now, here's general providence. General providence refers to God's continuous upholding the existence and natural order of His universe. It is the general daily, hourly, minutely providence of God that keeps the planet spinning and keeps uh, spring, summer, fall, winter coming, where, where the, the, the sparrows are fed and this giant universe 
keeps running like a fine oiled machine. That is the, that is the general providence of God. He takes care of and watches over his creation every single day. Jesus believed that. He said, not a sparrow falls to the ground that your father doesn't see it. And if his eye is on the sparrow, then I know he watches over me. All right, now, here's special providence. Special providence refers to God's direct intervention in the lives of people, particularly his people. It means that God intervenes in the affairs of men. He is, deists believe, a deist believes that God created everything, wound it up like a great big clock, and then stepped out of the picture and no longer has anything to do with the creation, and deism is completely wrong. The Bible says that God is intimately, intricately involved in the affairs of men. He intervenes constantly, and he is the God of history. History is his story. When you believe in God's providence, you don't believe in chance, you don't believe in luck, you don't believe in fate, and you don't believe that something just happens. You know that God is in charge. There's no such thing as luck for a child of God. If you get blessed, God was behind it. You believe that God is in charge of your life and that nothing takes place without passing through the sifter of his permissive will. Now, that's just classic Bible preaching. That's Bible teaching. If you want to know if David believed it, listen to some of his own descriptions of providence. Psalms 37, verse 23. The Lord directs the steps of the godly. He delights in every detail of their lives. That means that God delights in the big things, small things, and the in-between things. God is intricately involved in your life and mine. God knows if it matters to you, it matters to God. And then his son Solomon wrote about providence in Proverbs 16, verse 9. We can make our plans, but the Lord determines our steps. It is the Lord who determines our steps. So God is providentially involved. Can you imagine that? Every step you take, God is watching. He is watching and weighing every one of our thoughts, words, actions, and attitudes. God is intimately involved in ordering the way we go. He is is ordering our steps. He's in charge of our life. He's providential. Can I tell you that Satan is not in charge? That men are not in charge? That armies are not in charge? Nations are not in charge? But history is going to end with Jesus Christ standing at the end of history, wrapping everything up. History is his story, and God is in charge of all that happens in this world and how this world ultimately ends. It's in God's hands. When Abraham sent his servant to find a wife for Isaac, you remember that? Abraham brought his servant and said, listen, Isaac needs to get married. I want you to go to my hometown, and I want you to find a wife for him. And we find that the servant, remember this now, he didn't have the, the Holy Spirit. He did not have the Word of God. There was no Word of God. The servant did not have what we have. But here's what he did. He prayed to God, and he said, Lord, I'm asking you to direct my steps and give me good success in finding Isaac a wife. And the Bible says that he went into the town of Nahor, saw Rebekah right there at a well, and found out that she was of Abraham's family. 
And he said this in Genesis 24, verse 27, Praise the Lord, the God of my master Abraham. The Lord has shown unfailing love and faithfulness to my master, for he has led me straight to my master's relatives. What is he saying? He said, even when I wasn't aware of it, the providence of God was directing my steps. Do you know that even when you're not aware of it, God is directing your steps. He moves silently. Most of God's providential operations are silent and undetected by you and me. God is moving in ways right now that if we knew it all, it would blow our minds. He's got things that he is setting up for your life that if you knew it right now, your brain would pop because eye has not seen and ear has not heard and neither has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. Amen. Asaph wrote about the, the, the undetected moving of God. When he was looking back at the way that God led the children of Israel out of Egypt and across the Red Sea, he wrote this, Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. Psalm 77, verse 19. That means you were moving in ways, Lord, that nobody detected. You had such things in store that no one knew about. Matthew Henry wrote about this verse, and he said, God's ways are like the deep waters which cannot be fathomed, like the way of a ship which cannot be tracked. When a ship goes across the water, if you come up one minute later, you can't tell where that ship has been because the water comes back in and covers it, and there's no way of tracking where it's gone. Paul wrote this to the Romans about the, the, the undetected providential move of God. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable His judgments and His paths beyond tracing out. God is undetected in the great majority of what He does in your life and mine. He guides our steps without leaving a footprint. See, we think that that idea was ours or that a particular encounter with some person or event was by chance, only to realize later in retrospect that God had been in it. He's moving in your life today. You're not aware of it. You don't know all that he's got planned. You have no idea the things he is setting up, but the providential hand of God is moving, and that means we ought to wake up every day excited. What is God going to do today? This is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. His mercies are new every single morning. Great is His faithfulness. Now, keeping that in mind, this whole concept of providence, as David waited for Jonathan's appearance and the arrows he would shoot, he fully expected, I guarantee you, that whichever way those arrows went, God was in charge. He expected that. So he's waiting in the field. There he is. He's hidden behind some bush or off in the shadows where that little boy that's with Jonathan can't see him. Now here's what he was hoping. I know he was hoping this because the Bible says so. He was hoping that Jonathan would say, the arrows are on this side. It's safe to return. He's not out to get you. All is well, you can come back, but he didn't. Instead, when the moment came, he heard the words, 
Go farther. Go farther, David. The arrows are still ahead of you. It meant he must leave immediately for Jonathan himself said, the Lord, catch this, the Lord was sending him away. Now, this was a time when a madman was stalking David. His own father was trying to kill him. And yet Jonathan interpreted it according to the providence of God that the Lord was sending David away. I think the words that Jonathan used to warn David describe nicely what God's providence often requires of us. Now, everyone in here who is a child of God, you're under the providence of God. God is providential over your life. Now watch this. First, he said, go farther. You know what I've noticed about the providence of God? God's providence always takes us farther than we would ever have gone on our own. God loves you right where you are, but he loves you too much to leave you right where you are. God's providence invariably will stretch you. It will challenge you to reach further, to dig deeper than you normally would have ever done because we are so inclined to lay back in our lazy boy and, 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 rest and settle right where we are, and we would never challenge ourselves like the providence of God will. And the providence of God will bring out the best in us if we embrace the providence of God. And then Jonathan said, the arrows are still ahead of you, David. Go farther. Flee. Those arrows are still ahead of you. I hear it. The arrow of spiritual growth, the arrow of your destiny, the arrow of your ultimate purpose, is further down the road, still ahead of you. This is not it. Keep on going. Keep on going. There are things to learn, mountains to climb, people to meet, maturity to achieve, accomplishments to finish. Still ahead of you, David. God's going to stretch you. Run, run, go. The providence of God is taking you where you would not have chosen David, as much as you'd like to settle right where you are, the providence of God is not in agreement with that. To David, the arrows that flew past him were not any arrows. They were the arrows of God's providence. Providence was leading him to a life he would never have chosen. Now, can I tell you something about the Lordship of Christ? Sometimes the providence of God will lead you where your flesh does not want to go. where you really don't want to do it. But the providence of God is saying, go farther. The arrows are still in front of you. For David, it meant for the next 10 years, he would be a fugitive from justice. Running from the madman, Saul, he went to sleep every night with one eye open. Is he going to find me today? Am I going to wake up and find him with a spear in his hand, hovering over me. It meant he went from famous to infamous, from a hero to a zero. It meant that his home would be in caves and in open fields. It meant that he would be separated from his loved ones, that his name was going to be slandered in Israel and he wasn't going to be there to defend himself. He would have to leave his reputation with God. It meant that his faith was going to be tested to the marrow of his bones. The providence of God 
was leading him on. It meant that his constant companions would be around 400 men described as in debt, in distress, discontented, and mad at life. How did David handle it? How do you handle it? When providence doesn't take you where you want to go. When providence moves in your life in a way that you would not have chosen. How do you handle it? How we handle it is everything. It's not what happens to you and me. It's how we respond to what happens to you and me that matters more than any single thing. And so I'm preaching this because, listen, I know that, that God is testing and sifting his church. And the, the providence of God is going to take some of you, and right now is taking some of you to places and situations and contexts that you would not have chosen, that your flesh is not getting a warm fuzzy over. So how do we respond when providence takes us to a place not of our choosing because it's going to happen maybe to a job you don't like or a difficult relationship or giving something up that you're very attached to? Providence of God says, let it go and move on. Go farther. The arrows are ahead of you. God is leading you on. I want to learn from David, and I want us to learn from David. How did David deal with it when this happened? And it, and it rocked his world. It turned his life upside down and inside out. This, these arrows flying by. Uh, David was famous in Israel. Now he's leaving everything he'd known and loved and going he knew not where. So what did he do? How did he handle it? First, he embraced God's will. He embraced it. You know, I learned a long time ago that the key to following Jesus is surrender and surrender quickly. Because in a battle between you and God, let me tell you who's going to win. <laughs> there is no wisdom or counsel against the Lord. You can't run and you can't hide. He's going to find you. And, and so, you know, we, we sing all the time, I surrender all. We ought to add a little addendum. I surrender all until I don't like it. I surrender all until it goes against my flesh. I surrender all until it takes me where I really don't want to go. We ought to sing, I selectively surrender when I like what I'm hearing. <laughs> but that's not lordship, is it? The call of providence, when this happened to David, when those arrows flew by and he heard Jonathan's words, that call was gut-wrenching for David. Scripture records he and Jonathan wept together, but David more so because David was the one having to walk. From this point on, though, take note, we never hear a complaint from him. We never hear David complaining about anything. We never find any moping, grumbling, murmuring, playing a violin, or falsely charging God. We don't see any of that in the life of David. He, never, he doesn't sing a country song. Poor me, born under a bad sign. No one loves me anymore. Booze plus blues equals heartache. That country music, man. The only thing worse is rap. No, I know there's some good country music. I don't want to lose you saying I don't like country music. I'm sorry. Would you forgive me? <laughs> Rap is non-music. 
Anyway, he went straight out into the wilderness of the unknown with the resolve that God was with him and was somehow working out his plan. He had a grip on providence. He knew that God was even able to take his enemies and cause his enemies to work for his good. He trusted that. He embraced God's plan. Surrender. I surrender, Lord. I surrender. Even Jesus taught us that. Lord, if there's any way for me to get out of redeeming man this way, the way of the cross, show me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. I really do surrender all. Just surrender. Next thing I see David doing, this really blesses me. He redeemed his time. Now, rather than throwing endless pity parties, David decided to turn a lemon into lemonade by making the most of his circumstances. He said, I'm going to make the most of this. This isn't what I wanted, but I am going to make, I'm going to redeem my time However long I'm in this wilderness running from this man, I am going to redeem my time. And Paul the Apostle wrote about doing that very thing. Paul said, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Well, what does that mean, redeem the time? It means make the very most of your time. I like this one better. Take full advantage of every opportunity. Squeeze every bit of productive usefulness you can out of every opportunity God gives you. It, it means that whatever situation in life you find yourself, you make the most of it by doing what you can, when you can, with all the energy that you can. You say, I'm not going to sit and mope and play a violin and talk about how God's not with me and where is God? As a matter of fact, who wrote this Ephesians verse? Paul did. And where was Paul? Sitting in prison for doing something right. Do you find Paul in prison going, somebody get me a good lawyer. My rights have been stomped on. This isn't fair. Where's God? He's left me. All this stuff about faith wasn't true. It's not what he says. He said, I'm going to make the most of sitting down here in this stinky, dark, wretched, God-forsaken dungeon. Give me a pen and give me some paper. I'm going to write. And thank God he made the most of his opportunity because that gave us Colossians. It gave us 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy. It gave us Ephesians. It gave us, listen, it gave us all the letters that bless us constantly. Many of those Paul wrote sitting in a prison make the, making the most of every one of his opportunities. Redeeming the time. We call it blossoming where you're planted. Not walking around with an attitude or a chip on your shoulder because life has dealt you a bad hand, but you say, how can I redeem my time? Because God is with me, and if God is with me, who can be against me? And the Holy Ghost is going to give me something in this, and I'm going to work something out of this to the glory of God. This is not going to defeat me. I'm going to defeat it the devil's going to regret trying this with me. The devil is going to regret attacking me this way because I am going to redeem this and get the glory back to God. I am going to allow the Holy Spirit to make me a victor and triumph in this no matter what. Now, like Paul, here's a couple of things that David did. He poured his pain 
into his pen. That's one thing David did to redeem his time. He wrote at least 10 of his greatest psalms during this period of pain and testing. And you know what a test is, don't you? A te- today's test is tomorrow's testimony. And a testimony is when you've had a test with some moaning. <laughs> and any test is going to make you moan. And when you go through a test and you've done some moaning, if you give God the glory and make the most of it, your test with moaning is going to turn into a testimony. And that's the way it works. In Psalm 7, he told us what he was going through. In Psalm 7, he wrote about his resolve to trust God. Oh, Lord, my God, in you I put my trust. My defense is of God. That's David learning in the oven. In Psalms 59, verse 1, he gives his enemies to God. He is learning that though his enemies he can see, that the God he can't see can protect him from the enemies he can see. He said, deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Deliver me from those who have risen up against me to destroy me. And we even find him learning to praise God when the enemy enemy is literally breathing right down his neck. He said, I will sing aloud of your mercy in the morning. Thank God you gave me another morning. You know, the older you get, you wake up and you say, thank God you gave me another morning. Thank God the mercies of the Lord are new every morning. I will sing aloud of your mercy in the morning, for you have been my defense and refuge in the day of trouble. He learned to sing when Saul was hot on his trail. He learned to sing when it looked like Saul was going to take him out. He learned to praise God and trust in providence. How many millions of God's saints have been blessed, encouraged, strengthened, put back on their feet by what David wrote when he took full advantage of the situation he found himself in? But he didn't just stop with pouring his pain into his pen. He poured himself into his men. The Bible says, I love this. this, It's so like God. I want you to catch this. The Bible says that as soon as word got out that David was on the run, Then everyone, 1 Samuel 22, verse 2, then everyone who was in trouble, everyone who owed money, and everyone who was not happy with the way he was living came to David. Now here he is already running, already lost his own, already lost everything. And now this motley crew gathers around him, and the Bible says he became their captain. And there were about 400 men with him. Now let me tell you what David was thinking. I believe that God's in charge of everything. So when he looked at these men, and let me just tell you again, the condition of their mind, they were in debt, in distress, depressed, and mad at life. Now, if you've ever worked with people, you know that the last thing you want to work with is people who are always distressed, depressed, in debt, and mad at life. That is not what you want to work with. And and, and I think somebody that didn't understand providence would be saying, you have got to be kidding me. I've lost everything and this is what I get now. But here's what David said. I believe in providence. I believe in the hand of God. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take these in-debt, distressed, depressed, mad at life men, and I am going to transform them. I'm going to pour myself into them. What did he do with this sad group of miscreants? He trusted God's providence. 
He taught them his skill. He taught them his wisdom. He taught them his walk with God. And the Bible says that some of these men, these very men, would one day do feats of strength and courage unknown in all the annals of history. And they would become known as David's mighty men. David's mighty men. And here's where David is a picture of Jesus who took 12 common, ordinary, largely blue-collar, working-class men and turned them into total world shakers. It was like David said to them, I've got you, 400 of you, you're around me. Watch me, learn from me, let me teach you, and I'm going to make you to become what you would never have been if you had not followed me. And that's what Jesus says to you and me. Come on, if you're depressed. Come on, if you're mad at life. Come on, if you're distressed. I welcome all of you because if you follow me, I'm going to make you to become a mighty man, a mighty woman, and you're going to be a world shaker because you walk with me. I love that about Jesus. When Providence took David where he didn't want to go and didn't choose to go, he embraced God's plan. He redeemed his time. He poured his pain into his pen. He poured himself into his men. But there's one last thing that's very important. It's very clear when you look at David's life in its entirety, you read the Scriptures, look at his life in its entirety, and you understand why providence did not let him stay in Israel and settle. Because there were rough edges on his character. There were missing links in his faith. There were things in his walk with God that needed to be polished. So here's what I see. God's providence, particularly the difficult part of the providence, turned the man with a sling into a king. See, before God can put you where he's called you to be, he's got to get you ready to be where he's called you to be. Because if you step into where he's called you to be before you're ready for what he's called you to be, you will mess up where you wind up. If you get there prematurely, if you get there before your time, you will fail. Those difficult wilderness years of being stalked by Saul put steel in David's faith, put godliness in his character, brought him low so that God could lift him high. It worked, it chiseled, it molded, it shaped him. The hand of God. And God's hand is doing that with you right now. You don't see most of it. You're not aware of most of it. But you know that every single day God's hand is shaping you, molding you, making you, forming you, chiseling you. He's the potter, you're the clay, and you're on the wheel of his will. And his hands come in every day. And can we begin to see the providence of God that even some of the negative things that come our way, God is allowing so we can learn to sing in the midnight hour, so that we can learn to trust when we can't see any way out, when we can know that God is in charge providentially even though we may not understand what he's up to. David wrote in Psalm 66 an autobiographical testimony, and I want to close with this. I want you to hear this. He's looking back and he says, you have tested us, O God. You have tested us. You have made us pure like silver is made pure. 
We went through fire and we went through water, but you brought us out into a place where we have much more than we need. Isn't that beautiful? I got to read that one more time. You have tested us, Lord. We can all say this. You have tested us, O God. You have made us pure like silver is made pure. We went through fire and we went through deep waters where without you we would have drowned. But you brought us out into a place where we have much more than we need. I remembered reading a long time ago about silver purification when David says, you have made us pure like silver. And I remembered reading that a silversmith, when he's going to purify silver, he will slide it into a red hot, extremely high temperature oven and it will melt the silver and then he'll take a skimmer and very skillfully just skim across the top and the impurities that were in that silver are skimmed off and do you know how he knows that it's pure it's when he can see his reflection in the silver when he can see the reflection in the silver he says, it's pure. Now listen to me. You're God's silver. And he's the silversmith. And when God's providence takes you into a difficult place, don't you know what he's doing? He's chiseling. He's molding. He's shaping. He's skimming the impurities and the imperfections off the top. And what is he waiting for? When he looks into your life, he sees the reflection of Jesus. That's what he's after. He sees the reflection of Jesus. He makes all things work together for good of those who love him or the called according to his purpose that we might be conformed into the image of his son. He liked Jesus so much. He wants to see him in everybody. So with every trial, with every testing, with every valley, with every difficulty, skim, 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 polish, purify, looking for that reflection. I'm looking for that reflection. I'm looking for that reflection. Love joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, kindness, faith, Jesus. And eventually, somebody you know says, wow, you know who you just remind me of? Oh, here we go again. No, no, I'm not going to say my mom or dad. You just reminded me of Jesus. You say, really? I'm starting to reflect the glory of the Son. That's God's will. Can you trust providence today? I want you to stand with me. And in just a moment, we're going to pray together. We had a powerful service last night, powerful service in the 9 o'clock. But here's what the Lord directed me to pray, and I want to pray with you for a moment. Some of you are in a difficult hour. Providence has put you in a place you're struggling with. And you don't know what to do. And you're confused. And you're really struggling with keeping your grip on God. Because you don't understand the circumstances that have taken place. I have in my mind an imaginary file and it's labeled things I don't understand it's my imaginary file things I don't understand 
it's filed away in an imaginary drawer that says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. There are things I don't understand. And I got a lot of questions when I get to the other side. If I'm not too busy worshiping, I'm going to ask a lot of questions. But until then, when I don't understand his hand, I can trust his heart. Okay? I trust providence. Would you bow with me just for a moment? You're here today and you're struggling. And I want to pray with you. God wants to give you an answer of peace. He wants to settle your spirit, your heart. And I believe that he's going to touch us in the altar today. Last night, it was so powerful. All across this altar and this morning, all across this altar, God was touching people, saying, it's okay, I've got it. I'm in charge. And I want you to receive that touch from God today. Say, Pastor Jeff, I am struggling with providence, with the providence of God. I've ended up in a place I would not have chosen. I want you to come down. I want you to come down, and I want to pray with you right now. Slip out and just begin to walk, and we're going to believe God to give you an answer of peace and to settle you. In the name of Jesus, God's going to give you his peace that passes all understanding. And you may not have ever said, Jesus, come into my heart. Do you know that today you can leave this building with God's peace, knowing that you are right with God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ? If you need to be saved, if you've got a question mark about your salvation, I want you to come down, and we want to pray with you today. And this is a beautiful sight. I'm going to tell you, I wish you could see what I see. We had miracles last night. I'm going to flat out say it. Miracles last night. And there's going to be miracles today. We're going to sing right now. Heidi, if you'll just lead us. And we're going to pray for these folks. And everybody, please, just be in an attitude of prayer and worship. And let's let God move here today.